Hi, I'm Melissa Smith, and today's leadership quote comes from Jack Welch. Before you are a leader, success is all about growing yourself. When you become a leader, success is all about growing others. The Leader Assistant Podcast exists to encourage and challenge assistants to become confident, game-changing leader assistants. Thank you for listening to the Leader Assistant Podcast. And here's your host, my data. As an executive assistant, I'm asked to send gifts for various occasions to clients, board members, prospects, and employees all the time. Personally, I like to send wine because who doesn't like wine, right? But shipping wine is challenging and picking out amazing wine is even more challenging. Thankfully, my friends at Elkhorn Peak Cellars are here to help. Elkhorn Peak is a small, family-owned vineyard and winery on the south end of the Napa Valley. They are owned and operated by a father-daughter duo, Ken and Elise. Elkhorn Peak makes only 1,000 cases of wine annually. You won't find their wines in any wine shops, and their fruit and wines continue to be one of Napa Valley's best-kept secrets. So the next time your executive asks you to send them something nice, don't think twice. Reach out to the family team at Elkhorn Peak Cellars for your corporate gifting needs. They will carefully and craftily package your wine and even include a handwritten note. Visit elkhornpeak.com slash leader assistant to step up your gifting game today. Again, that's elkhornpeak.com slash leader assistant. All right, let's get to the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Leader Assistant Podcast. It's your host, Jeremy Burrows. And today I'm very excited to be speaking with Melissa Smith. Melissa is founder and CEO of the Association of Virtual Assistants. And she's also best-selling author of Hire the Right Virtual Assistant and Become a Successful Virtual Assistant. Melissa, how's it going? It's going very well, Jeremy. Thank you. So let's just dive right in. And why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your career and how you kind of got kicked off as a, as an assistant. And then um, tell us a little about your transition from working in the office and then uh, working virtually. Yeah. So my mom was an assistant. And when I was growing up, I just wanted to be like my mom. When I would go visit her in the office, people would say all these great things about her and how she, they just couldn't live without her. She was just awesome. And I thought, I want, I want people to say that about me. (laughs) So I thought, okay, well, when I grow up, I'll be an assistant like my mom. So I did. I went to secretary school back when that's when we were called. And I always knew that that's what I wanted to be. And I, I loved it. I loved being an executive assistant. The only bad part about it, which wasn't really bad, it, you know, fit into my career and certainly helped me, but uh, it never really gave me longevity because I didn't have a degree. So I worked in education and higher education. And in order to get a raise or to get promoted, you had to have a degree. So I would top out very quickly. So about every two years, I was changing my job. Like long before millennials were changing jobs, I was changing jobs. And when 
I would be interviewed and they would say, why do you have so many jobs? What's, what is this all about? And I said, well, you know, I topped out because I didn't have a degree. So I have to promote myself and I move on to the next thing. And I said, but you can call any single one of my past employers and they will tell you that I am still on very good terms with them, that I left the place of office better than I found it and that they would hire me back in a moment. And really, that's how I was running my my career. And so here I was again changing a job and in a different position. I was on my new job for three days. And then all of a sudden, my husband died. And that really just drastically <laughs> changed everything. Uh, my daughter was a sophomore at the time. My son was off in college. And I thought, okay, well, I just kept on being an assistant and that wasn't going to change anything. This is what I would did. But what it did change was that I would have to move back to my home in California after a year. I just needed to be near my family. I needed to have that uh, comfort, that security. And so I, I found another job. I was being an executive assistant still. And I was there for a year. And after a year, my daughter came to me and she said, I can't do this anymore. California's not my home. Georgia's my home. I want to go back home to Georgia to finish up my senior year of high school. And I knew I had to give that to her, but I really loved this job. And I was very, very sad to go, but uh, I knew I had to do it. So I went to my boss and I said, Hey, I got to give my two weeks notice. I'm sorry. And he said, we don't want to lose you. How can we keep you? And I told him, I said, I can do most of what I do virtually. I don't actually have to be here in the office. And he said, okay, let's do that. And so I became their first remote employee. Wow. So that was, when was that? So uh, that was 2013. Um, and then I officially started my business in 2014. My husband passed away in 2012. Wow. So the first remote employee at that company. Um, and really that, I mean, that was, I'm sure virtual assistant was a thing back then. Um, but it wasn't a hip thing <laughs> probably yet. <laughs> no, it was not. And in fact, I, when I started my business and when I started becoming virtual, I was in office ninjas and I was in other, uh, admin groups and assistants and people would have me come talk and like, be on a panel and no one wanted to hear what I had to say about being virtual. Hmm. They did not like it at all. Um, <laughs> some people were like, that's the most ridiculous thing. How could you run something from the office? Because as I started really getting involved in the virtual world, I really understood that this was the way of the future. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because people didn't value the office. It wasn't because people didn't like collaboration or that people didn't like people. It was because so many companies have already been doing it and the impact it has to the bottom line and profits is quite large. The impact it has to the new talent pool that you can have is quite large. And when it comes down to it, everybody that is successful really does follow the money trail and the talent trail. So it wasn't about, Hey, you know, we're just going to close up the office for no good reason. And because we don't think it's good and because no one wants to be here, it's a money trail 
thing. <laughs> it really is. And I, I could have never predicted COVID, mm-hmm. but I can tell you those companies who already had their remote work policies in place and they were already, you know, hiring that way were far ahead of the game than those who were not. But when I, when people would say, no, I, my, I, I, my value is because I'm in the office. Like I run the office and I would say, okay, well tell me what that's like. Tell me, tell me what you do in the office. And like the office can't run without me. Mm-hmm. And I would say, well, what are you going to do when there is no more office? <laughs> and they would look at me like I was crazy. They would say, that's never going to happen. And I would say, okay. Wow. So you, you mentioned COVID. So the way I've seen uh, things with this pandemic is what you said, where it's kind of the future, um, you know, this remote work, the virtual work, the hybrid office is is the future. Well, I've kind of seen that. Um, and, and you, as you just said, you, you have seen it for a while as well. Um, but what's interesting with the pandemic is it seems like it has basically brought the future to us a lot a lot quicker than um some people might may have even liked um but it's not that like the world is all of a sudden changing and we're all of a sudden just going to have to be virtual and remote i think the world was already changing that direction and i think we were already heading that way um, and this just expedited the process it really did and you know, I, I love doing things in person. I, I love going and seeing places in, in person. It was never, you know, my grand idea that the whole world should be virtual or remote, but I definitely saw the writing on the wall. And, and why that's so important is because as an assistant, uh, as any person who's working remotely, you really have to know your value. And if your value is that you just do things in the office that can be done by somebody else, by an outsourced company, if you don't really know what that value is and why people really hire you, it it makes it really hard to stay present and stay valuable to your companies and to your employers. And it, and again, it's I could tell someone really easily why they're valuable, right? I'm on the outside looking in. I have no skin in the game, so I can just take a look around and I can look and I can say, oh, this is why people find you valuable. But usually the most valuable things about a person, they can't see in themselves because it's so simple. It's something that they probably can't shut off if they tried. And it's the thing that they do without thinking about it. But yet when it comes down to it and it's time to, you know, get a raise, get a promotion, look for a new job, that's exactly the thing that you have to translate and you have to be aware of it. It doesn't matter how many times I tell someone how valuable they are, how great they are. If they're not bought into it, it doesn't matter. They have to do it. So that's why I always ask the question because it's so important that someone knows why is it that people hire me? What is my it factor? What does that look like? Because it's going to be different for, for everybody. Managing someone's calendar, managing someone's inbox, uh, you know, being a gatekeeper, preparing board meetings, preparing slides. You know, I, I would love to think that, you know, we're, we're all the best at that, but those things can be easily replaced by somebody else. Yeah, I agree. So what, what would be one thing that you just practically believe that assistants could do for their executive 
and their company that could not be outsourced? Well, again, I think it goes back to what the company or the person finds valuable. We have a lot of leaders out there, um, a lot of executives, and they are their own worst enemy. <laughs> they, can, they You can't outsource an app for someone to not be their own worst enemy anymore. Someone has to get in their face and say, hey, you hired me to do X, Y, Z. Are you going to let me do it or are you not? And an app's not going to do that. Another company's not going to come in and do that. They're not going to have any skin in the game. But when you hire an assistant and you have to know, like, why is this person really hiring me? What, what's the value I'm going to bring to the table? Like, what are they going to entrust me with that is, is, is going to be us? Like, we're going to be doing this as a team. And then you have to really go back to that and know that and be able to say that to somebody. So when I'm in an interview or when I was in an interview with, you know, any employer that I I was interviewing with and they would ask me, you know, what questions do you have for me? And my question was always, what do you really want this position to do? Like I read the job description. I know what the last person did, but what do you want it to do that you're afraid to ask for? And they would say, oh, wow, I would really love, you know, X, Y, Z. I would really love for someone to, for like, I want, I want to go see my kids. I want to get off at a certain time. I want someone to stand up to people and say, no, you can't have this meeting. No, I'm busy. (laughs) She's busy. He's busy. I I want someone who's going to really take over and tell me to stop, to tell me to get off at, at five or tell me it's okay to leave. And so those were the things that, you know, I, I really did. And not only that, but it was all about, okay, but if you're going to let me do this, then you're going to have to give me control of your calendar because I'm going to make it happen. But it's not because you're not getting work done. We're going to completely overhaul your calendar and you're going to get all your work done and you're going to leave on time and you're going to do all these things. And then you're actually going to enjoy the time because I'm not going to have you out with your kids and feeling guilty and thinking about work, that's not going to work either. And, you know, for everyone, that's going to be different. Some people, they're like, no, if I get off at seven, if I get off at nine, I'm good. <laughs> um, I've never worked in corporate because I didn't want that kind of lifestyle. But, you know, you find out what is valuable to the person. doesn't matter what it is. You have to find out what's valuable to them because you can do everything but that. And it could be considered a failure. But if you did just that one thing, then it could be a huge success. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, my executive says his goals right now and probably for the rest of his life <laughs> are to stay healthy, stay married, and stay in business. And so because I know that, then I know that my goals as his assistant are to help him stay healthy, stay married, and stay in business. So everything that I do, I kind of filter through that lens. And I know that that's going to set me up well to, um, yeah, to, to not be able to be outsourced. Exactly. Awesome. So let's switch to the executive's perspective for a second. Um, I loved your question that you asked, um, executives when you're being interviewed, what's a, what's an interview question for an executive to ask a potential assistant? 
I really like to ask them, you know, what about me attracted you? Why would you want to work for someone like me? Hmm. And, and see what they say to that for, for my clients, my, my private clients are often males. When I worked in an office, they were females. Uh, when I, on my own as a VA, my private clients are males and they can typically all fall in the same box. They have small children. They want to be better dads. They have social anxiety disorders of some kind. So they're very successful, but they don't always deal well with people. And so when they say, how can you work with someone like me? I can easily tell them, well, based on my background and my dad had PTSD and was bipolar, I'm very comfortable in situations that make other people awkward and I know how to handle it. I'm not sensitive and I can give you the direct feedback you need in real time versus someone else who is going to shy away or have their feelings hurt or not know how to handle the situation and step up and tell you you're actually doing something wrong. And so they really appreciate that. But I can also tell them I I feel much more comfortable in those situations as well because those are the things that I know. I don't work well with creatives. (laughs) I, (laughs) I need so much structure in my life that working with a creative or anyone who says, oh, you know, we're going to herd cats today, that just, I can find them a VA, but I cannot be their VA because I do not know how to work without super solid boundaries and schedules and things like to a T. I don't work in, you know, circles and, and patterns. I work in blocks of time and 15 minute increments and five minutes is five minutes. <laughs> So, you know, when they say that, they're like, oh, you are my person. And I'm I said, absolutely I I am very choosy who I will work with. I know very much my my value. And that really comes from my mom and watching her as I was growing up. But I, I've never had a job that I've disliked. And I didn't even know that was a thing until I became an entrepreneur and found out that many other entrepreneurs became entrepreneurs because they hated their job. Are you ready to elevate your career in 2024? I'm Maggie Olson, founder of Nova Chief of Staff Certification, the first of its kind online course for aspiring and existing chiefs of staff. With curriculum taken directly from on-the-job responsibilities, Nova's self-paced learning modules provides you with hands-on experience so you can feel competent and confident moving into a chief of staff style role. It's the perfect next step for executive assistants. Head to leaderassistant.com slash Nova to learn more, grab the syllabus and enroll today. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of assistants listening are either considering becoming a virtual assistant or they've kind of taken that leap and they're trying to find clients. Um, how did you figure out who you wanted to work with? Did you work with a few or did you interview with a few potential clients that you could just tell right off the bat that they weren't a good fit or how did you kind of navigate that? Cause I know a lot of new VAs they are like, well, I just need clients. Yes. 
I struggled. (laughs) You know, the, the struggle to go remote was not hard. That was easy because I always felt that regardless, I was working remote with my executives. They were traveling. They were in class. They were in meetings. We would be in the next office. They could yell across the room, but still they would text me or you know send an email. So that part was really seamless. Didn't have a problem. But the problem that I had was what so many EAs have when they go on to being a VA. And that is when we're in the office, we are the Jack or Jill of all trades, right? Like we'll do anything. We get tasked with this. We get tasked with that. We're on it. We got it. Less is so much more when you're a VA. Less is so much more. There's just not the same need to be that Jack or Jill of all trades. And one of the main reasons is because you're also not having just one client. You have multiple clients. So if you're constantly changing up and having to go back and forth and context switch and you don't ever get into this rhythm, you can't scale that to four or five clients. As an executive virtual assistant, you know, if you're have a client, they're really on top of their game. You're, you're looking at three to five clients max. And when I say five clients max, I mean, they're probably not that busy, but if you have some, you know, bigger executives and they have like bigger companies, uh, you're looking at two to three and to be able to do all that context, switching, you really less is more. And it was so hard for me when I first started and I had a business coach and she kept on telling me that you're doing too much, you're doing too much and do less and do less. And then she was charge, telling me to charge more. And I thought, woman, you're crazy. <laughs> you, you, why would you say that? I, I would get fired if I did this in an office. And she said, you're not in an office. You work for yourself. What are you talking about? <laughs> and we just went round and round and I kept on telling her and I was just so frustrated. And I said, how many things do you want me to take off my plate before like someone hires me? And she's like, everything until the right person does hire you. And I thought, oh, okay. Um, (laughs) And and really what it boiled down to was that people wanted to hire me to manage their their projects. And then my private clients, they wanted me really to help manage their personal life that overspilled from their business life. Um, they had set themselves up for really good, um, a really good team that did a lot of things. So they didn't have to manage people and they didn't have to talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> but there was still that little bit that was their business life and it kind of spilled over into their personal life. And so uh, I, I became more uh, of that side of things. And I still did all the things that I used to do, you know, calendar, flow, management, scheduling, liaison, vendors, uh, travel, you know, all those things were still involved. But there, if you just tell people all those things, it overwhelms them. But if I could just take a step back and, you know, I, they ask you, what do you do? And I say, you know, I, I manage your life. And they're like, oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it was really hard for me to distill that down and put it into words. I mean, it, it was a year for me and that's not for everybody. Most people, you know, they're like, oh, I definitely know what I'm going to do. I definitely have this thing. Uh, but there's a lot of us out there that when we first get started, 
you know, the word niche sounds like a bad word. Um, we're not for it. We're against it. We, you know, they're like, Oh, I don't, I'm afraid I'll get bored. This is not fun. But yeah. And I mean, when I look back all the times I was turning away money because people would, you know, want to hire me for something. And I would say, Oh no, that's not really me. I don't really do that. I don't know what to charge. You know, there was all these things because I honestly, I didn't know what I was really valuable for. And it took me a a good bit to to figure it out. It it took me a good bit to figure it out. And that's not everybody, but that was certainly me. And that's always why I ask the questions to EAs. Like, what's, what are you really known for? What's your real value? Why would people hire you back over and over again? Why would someone give you a great recommendation? Why would they say they can't run the office without you? That's too general. What, what can we get that's more specific? And when you have those things, then you can really start deciding like what your niche is and who your clients are. Because then when, once you know who your client is, then you know where to find them. If you don't know where they are, you you don't know where to find them. Right. So, okay. So then talk about pricing for a minute. Once you figured it out and kind of, all right, this is who I'm going to work with. Did you just bump your price up and keep, keep raising your price? Yes. So I am probably quoted on pricing more than any other topic. Uh, it's going to be the topic of my next book (laughs) is what (laughs) I'm really known for because again, I did it so wrong in the beginning. And I was charging by the hour because that's, you know, we break everything down an hour. Even if I was on salary, the salary as it was presented to me came in the form of a salary and then they broke it down to an hour, hourly rate. <laughs> so that's what I did. And, you know, there's always going to be that time uh, for the Association of VAs. We have an industry standard pricing guide and it just gives the minimum. It's the minimum that you should be charging in the industry. It doesn't mean that's what you have to charge. You can certainly charge more, but we provide the minimum and it's for the protection of both the VAs and the clients. But what I realized was if I charge by the hour, I'm going to make less money as I go along because as I get to know this client better and I'm actually doing things less, I'm just going to penalize myself. Hmm. That's not cool. Like <laughs> you're going to be doing a better job, out. but taking less, yeah, like, counting less, okay. less hours. <laughs> so, um, again, I went back to my coach and I said, you know, how do I do this? And we, we started talking about long-term value and packages and what that looks like. And so I started creating package pricing again, not, re- not tied to hours. The biggest mistake in package pricing that BAs make is that they tie it to hours. So that's really, it's not a true package. It's if it's tied to hours or what you have as a retainer, but packages tell my clients, it doesn't matter if I, this takes me five minutes, five hours, 50 hours, whatever it is, this is what I'm getting paid. And you're not paying me to do it for the amount of time that it takes me. You're paying me for the value that I'm giving you and the long-term value that I'm providing. So package pricing is very different than hourly rates and retainer rates. 
which are perfectly fine. Uh, there's no right or wrong, but to create package pricing means that you're creating a different type of experience for your client. You have a different type of mindset and you certainly have to know your value. Um, so much, so much the talk is all about know your worth, know your worth. Well, as far as I'm concerned, everyone's priceless. There's not another you, there's not another me. But that works both ways. There's not another one of our clients, right? So if we're all priceless, uh, that really prices us all out of one another. It's really hard to put that down on paper. But what's really easy to put on paper is your value. What you offer for what their problem is, the solution, and how long you will provide that for, that's easy to do. So can you give us an example of, of one of these packages? Sure. So for instance, for a consultation with me is $250 for 45 minutes. And the client knows what they're walking away with. The client knows that they're going to walk away with a job description. They're going to walk away with questions to ask during the interview in an onboarding document. They got that. If a client wants my royal treatment package, then it's $2,500. I'll match them with the right VA. I'll conduct all the interviews. I'll do the reference check. I'll do the background check. I give them a three-month guarantee. If it doesn't work out within the first three months, I'll match them and get it no charge. I have a 98% match rate, and we're done. So that's real easy. So some people would say, oh my gosh, why would anyone pay for that? There's virtual assistants everywhere. I can go to here, I can go to there. Like I know somebody who's a VA. But for my clients, it's a different kind of experience because they would say, I don't have the time to get it right and I can't afford to get it wrong. Who can I throw money at to solve this problem for me? And they like, where have you been my whole life? This is awesome, I wanna do this more. Right. For my book management clients, so I help uh, people who want to write a book, and so I manage that project, and it's really based on how well are we going to, uh, how long are we going to take to do this? So we have three, four, or five months. I don't work with people on books for more than five months. We are going to crank this book out. So the packages start at 5000 and then it goes up from there. So 5,000 for three months and then it goes up from there depending on what they want. So we have a base of that because it's all about expectations. People's expectations for what the book process um, covers is all different. So uh, we start at expectations of 5,000. Then again, for my private clients, we start at 5,000 to work with them. Um, and again, that's the minimum that we start out, but that's the expectation and that they're going to need something and I'm going to get it done. And we don't really know what that is. Like, I'm not going to take on a client who wants me to sit around my laptop and answer emails all day and requires, you know, a three hour turnaround time. That's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> so I also know who my client is. It's not just that I know my value, but I also know who values that and what they're looking for. Um, and then for my remote work consulting, uh, it, it will vary based on the number of remote hires or the work strategy that we're, you know, talking about. But I know the companies that value me are going to be companies of 20 or less. They don't have a dedicated HR department and they have no time to start their hiring process, strategize around it, write the job description and do the first interviews. Mm -hmm. So those are the companies that I serve. And, and typically we're going to start around $10,000 for that. And when it comes to package pricing, 
you know, people say, well, how much time do you spend on this? And how much time do you do this? And how much time do you do that? It, it, you have to, you have to know your time, of course, but you also have to know how much of the time the client is going to require of you. Cause you'll always get faster. We'll always figure out a way to do it, but what's the client's expectation of the time? What's their value of the time? But what most people forget about when they put their packages into place and they think about their time is the time that they don't want to work. So I raise my prices quite astronomically overnight when I learned this formula because I always knew that I was going to write books, that I was going to coach people, that I was going to build an association and all that takes a great amount of my time. I didn't want to work myself to death, although, um, I almost did a few times, but I needed to make sure that the money I was making was going to pay for the time that I was serving my clients and the time that I was not so that I could work on myself. And that is a key factor. People put way too much, uh, time into thinking about their prices for the time that they are working, but not enough time into thinking about their pricing for the time that they're not working. And there's a huge, huge difference. I mean, if, if I, I could charge $99 for my consultations, I would be book solid every day, all day long, but I don't want to do that. I only want to work when I want to work and I only want to do certain things. So I need to price that accordingly in order to make sure that I only work as much as I want so that I can work on my own business the rest of the time. So when you said private clients, did you mean like essentially you're their private executive virtual assistant? Correct. So I, I don't take on private clients all the time because, again, I'm, I'm building my own businesses mm -hmm. and doing my own thing. So I, I take on private clients maybe one or two times a year and they are for short term. I They're see. not for okay. long term. Um, I'm usually getting them on their feet or getting them through a rough patch for about three, maybe four months. And then, you know, we'll move them on to someone who can be dedicated to them. But, uh, yeah, me being someone's client or, you know, EA forever is is not in my book because right, right. I have my own businesses that I have to take care of. Nice. Well, speaking of your, uh, your own businesses, tell us a little bit about your books and, um, yeah, just, just how did those come to be and what are they about? So my first book came to be because I was managing other people's book processes. And so my clients began asking me, when are you going to write your own book? <laughs> and I thought, what would I write about? And they said, well, you're writing all the time. And I said, I know, but that's different from writing a book. And they said, well, you know, write about that thing that you do, like where you like match people with virtual assistants. And I thought, really? And they're like, oh, yeah, people would love to know about that. And I thought, OK, I guess like and then one of my clients just really pushed me and he said, you got to do it. Like, you can't be managing a book process and not have manage your own book process. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's fair for that. I'll do it. Right. So I wrote the book and it just took off. And I was, I mean, I was, it's what I wanted and I was super pleasantly surprised, but I didn't think that it was going to change my entire business structure. Cause I had been matching clients to VAs already, but 
I had been doing it for a year without charging for it <laughs> because, uh-huh. because again, like I didn't know that that would be valuable to somebody. I had no idea that'd be valuable to somebody because it was so easy for me. And so when I first started charging and first started doing it, you know, the idea of writing a book about it, it was really commonplace. I, I thought it was common knowledge. I didn't know really who would read it or if it would take off, but it really took off. And then what I found was strange was that VA started contacting me and they were like, how are you doing this? What are you doing? I loved your book. I'm going to put it on my shelf. And for years I was just shocked. And I thought, why is, why are VAs reaching out to me? I just don't understand. But then later I learned that the reason is because we had a shared value. No one was, no one was their voice before. No one was saying, Hey, this is what it really takes to work with a virtual assistant. That's how you hire one. This is why they're so great. This is what they can do for you. This is what you can charge. This is how you build a team. Everyone was just saying before, like, Hey, that's a great way to save some money. You know, that's a great way to hire someone and only pay $10. Mm-hmm. And no one was really talking about the value, the expertise that an assistant is a partner, that an assistant can help you strategize, that an assistant can make your life easier, that they can do all these things are not task takers. They are parts of your business that are critical to the mission and having you have a better life. And so having that part was really great. And that opened up another side of my business where I started, um, consulting with VAs because everyone that I seemed to come into contact with online, they, their story was much different than mine. They were like, Oh, I was making six figures in six months. And I was like, Oh, well I wasn't, (laughs) (laughs) I was riding the struggle bus for the first six months for sure. So I just didn't have anything in common with them. But then when other VAs started reaching out to me and they had struggles and I thought, oh, I did too. Here's what I did for that. And here's what I did for that. And finally, again, slow learner. But I thought, wow, I wonder if if VAs would be willing to to pay me for this information. (laughs) They were. So then I started uh, consulting with VAs and I had a summit and an online class and I used all that information and I wrote my second book, Become a Successful Virtual Assistant. And that released in January 2018. And uh, that was really incredible. I, I still have VAs reaching out to me and saying, I'm so thankful for this book because it's my goal is not to teach anyone the skills to be an assistant. If you're, if you're picking up the book and you're becoming a VA, I'm just assuming that you have them already. Um, I, I think I'm a huge fan of assistance. I'm a huge fan of virtual assistants. It's why I can do what I do because I market EAs and VAs better than they could possibly market themselves. I'm a huge fan. So my goal is saying like, I don't need to teach you that stuff you know how to run a calendar, you know how to do spreadsheets, you know how to do reports, you can do all far better than I can in, in many situations. That's not how you run a business though. Mm-hmm. So my book really concentrates on, okay, how do you run a business? Anyone could be a virtual assistant, but not everyone can run a business. And that is much different. How do you get the clients? How do you do your pricing? How do you know what to network? How do you market yourself? How do you do all those things? 
and change from that employee mindset to that business owner entrepreneurial mindset. Those are different. And so that's really the place where I wrote my book from. Um, and there's a lot of courses out there for VAs. There's a lot of things that they can take. There's, you know, VAs live on YouTube videos and how to's and taking courses. So there's no, there was never a need for me to do that. It was more about how do you put all these things together in order to run a business and not just think of other people because as assistants, you know, we're trained to take care of our clients, our executives, those that we serve. But when you're a business owner, you are your first client. And if you take all your time to take care of them and you never take care of yourself and you never take care of your own business, you won't be in business for a long. Yeah. So on that note, um, who do you think should not be a virtual assistant? In other words, um, you, you mentioned not everybody, um, not every assistant is cut out to run their own business. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if somebody's listening right now thinking, all right, I want to run my own business, whatever, is there something, I mean, obviously I'll, I'll link to your book in the show notes so that they can go deeper on this topic, but is there something that they can do as almost like a look in the mirror, self-assessment to say, listen, am I really ready to run a business or not? I don't know that someone could say, you know, if I, if I'm ready or not, I went into it and I was completely naive and that worked for me. Had I known (laughs) everything I was getting into, I probably wouldn't have done it because the lack of knowledge that I had was overwhelming when I look back on it. I, but I was so naive when I first started. I didn't know the difference. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. This is my chance. I'm going to go for it. I was super gung-ho. Um, I had made up my mind. And I think anyone who hasn't made up their mind is probably not a good fit. And that's not just for virtual assistants. That's for anything. Yeah, you know, if, you're, if you haven't made up your mind to exercise or lose weight or eat right or learn a new language or to learn a new skill, like you're not really going to get what you want out of it, right? It's not going to really pay off. You have to really make up your mind and be all in. It doesn't mean you have to go full time and quit your job or anything like that, but you have to come to a place in your mind that says, I'm going to make this work because no matter what, what you're doing in life, you're going to bump up into a problem, right? You're not every day is going to be great. And you have to go back and say, I made up my mind that I was going to do this today may not be the best day. I might've had a setback. I might have run into a problem. I don't know how I'm going to fix it yet. I don't know how I'm going to solve it, but I know I'm going to do it. And if I hadn't made up my mind that this is what I'm going to do and I'm not turning back, Oh, I would have run back to my job over and over and over again. I mean, I would have never got my business off the ground. And I, I talked to VAs all the time and they're like, I did it. I started, I was still working at the time. I did my side hustle. I started getting more clients and, you know, they did all these things and made these sacrifices and they put their mind to it and they made it work. And the common denominator of those who haven't been successful are those who really have one foot in and one foot out the door Hmm. because they're just like, it sounds good, but I'm not sure. Yeah. 
I want to do it, but I don't know. And it's the same if you, you know, if you, you're in that administrative role right now and you want to get into the C-suite or you want to be the founder's assistant, you want to work for the, you know, person in a specific department and you're trying to work your way up there. You can't be wishy-washy about it. You have to say, I, that's my goal. I'm going to do it. I don't, I don't necessarily know how I'm going to do it right now, but I'm going to figure it out. And that's, that's what I'm going to be doing from now on. Um, it, it, it's the same. You have to have that kind of mindset. Yeah. You know, I, it's funny you say that because a lot of the assistants I've talked to who are like, yeah, I'm tr- considering trying to go virtual whatever. And I start asking them about it and get it, getting into it. And it's like, oh, you know, you haven't really tried. You're just kind of dipping your toe in and uh, you may never, <laughs> never take off and jump in because you're, like you said, got your hand on on both sides of the fence. So the last question, I like to, I always like to ask what makes an assistant a leader, but I want to specifically ask you, um, how can assistants lead their executives while working remotely? So a true assistant, whether human or AI, is always going to be measured by their ability to anticipate their executives and or their clients needs. And that's how we that's how we provide so much value, right? We're looking out and saying, okay, you're healthy, you're still married, you're still in business. And here's all the things that I've done to make sure that you're always pointed in that direction, that I've anticipated that this is going to be a problem for you if you do this, I have anticipated that this is going to be great for you if you do this. And so when we're talking about leading and in even remote terms, you still have to anticipate those needs. You have to show up and you have to build the trust. And then when you've done that, the tables start to turn. No longer does the client, you know, kind of look at you and um, think, well, you know, I already have this decision made Um, or, okay, well, maybe next time. Um, thanks for, you know, the offer. And it's you constantly pinging them and saying, I I'm here, I'm here to make a difference. I'm here to anticipate your needs. These are your goals. And I'm not going to stop until we meet them because I'm like the terminator. Um, and that's me personally. I'm like the terminator. Uh, that's not everybody. Uh, that's my own personal style. So I'm not saying that you have to be that way. (laughs) But, uh, I said, you know, until you tell me you want to change these goals, then I'm not going to stop. So if you want me to take this off your agenda, you want me to take this off your to-do list, you then you tell me you change your goals. And when they see that kind of dedication and that kind of trust and, you know, always pointing back to this is what you said you wanted and this is what I'm trying to help you achieve. If, you know, if that's changed, then just let me know. And then it's not long after that, then they start coming to you and bouncing ideas off of you. Right. Because who do we trust? Who do we think is a leader? Someone could have that title, but if we don't trust them, they're not a leader to us. (laughs) They they could be anybody like, I don't trust you. You're not leading me anywhere. I'm not following you nowhere. Good luck with that. But once you earn that trust, then you earn that leadership title. Right. Because then they start coming to you. What do you think about this? Can I bounce this idea off of you? Do you see a better way? Do you see a problem with this? How could this be better? 
I don't know. I, you know, what do you think about this opportunity? Can you follow up instead? And then they automatically start assigning you those roles. Like, okay, you do this and you make the decision and then you report back to me. And, you know, it all starts there, but it starts by, you know, showing up, doing the things that we say we're going to do, anticipating and, you know, repeating back what the client said, because they forget, they forget all the time because they're, you know, and it's not that they're trying to do it on purpose, but when you're a leader and you're in a leadership position and you have all these people to manage and you have all these different things that you're doing, it's easy to get sidetracked and we're the people that keep them on track. So we also have to remind them of what their real purpose is. Are they busy or are they being purposeful? Are they being productive or are they just passing time? And when we can do all those things and they're like, this person has my back. They, I trust this person so much. There's no greater way for them to pay you back than asking your opinion and treating you as their, their partner and trusting you to lead with them and beside them. Hmm. Mic drop. There's the mic drop right there. Um, (laughs) Great, great, great end of the conversation. So why don't you uh, tell us where we can find you online and how we can support what you're up to. Um, Obviously, I'll share all the links in the show notes, but uh, um, maybe tell us quickly about the Association of Virtual Assistants as well for those interested. Sure. So uh, I'm at uh, thepva.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, Melissa Smith, the PVA. I live there. So uh, (laughs) you can really find me there all the time. The Association of Virtual Assistants is where I spend a majority of my time with my members. We have a members only Slack community, uh, but you can certainly email me there. And the Association of Virtual Assistants is really designed to bring together uh, like-minded individuals who want to be valued as a virtual assistant. There's so many out there that said, you know, people just don't value what I'm doing. They don't know my worth. They uh, don't take what I do seriously. Um, And I'm a professional. And just like you were maybe in the office and just like, you know, I was when I was in the office, you want that kind of association, that structure, um, those guidelines, that community where you can uh, have a network and exchange resources and thoughts and ideas and become a better business owner, become a better VA. That's what the association is all about. We're all about training industry standards. We have a BA state of the industry report where you can see what's going on in the industry, where the gaps are, where the trends are. And it's all about providing you the education and the platform and the resources to have the freedom and flexibility that comes with being a VA, which is the number one reason why people become virtual assistants. And so we're here to support that and value you in that no matter what type of VA business you choose to run. That's great. Well, uh, again, I'll share the show notes uh, or the links in the show notes. And Melissa, thank you so much for, yeah, just sharing your story and uh, telling us a little bit about what you're up to and some great tips uh, and great wisdom. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Thank you, Jeremy. It was great. Uh, Thanks for all you do for assistance. Please review on Apple Podcasts. Go Bullos.com.